Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your presence with us, Lord. And as we approach uh, this passage, this dark part of David's life, Lord, I pray that you would give us mercy and grace as we approach it from all of the different situations that we're coming from, Lord. A passage like this has the capacity to, to kick up a lot of muck, maybe from previous experiences that we've had, things that have been done to us or done to other people, but Lord, your love covers a multitude of sins and your spirit can heal, Lord. So we ask your presence with us, that you would guide us and you would allow us to take something away from your word today that we can tangibly cling to and know and believe. In your name we pray, amen. I doubt there's a single person here who has not felt the emotional blow of hearing about the fall of a respected leader. I could give an example, but I don't need to, um, from any era of history, even the last month or week. I remember for me, I was on a train in England when I heard that a Christian artist I had adored fell from the the faith, basically. And I I felt like somebody reached up my rib cage and just grabbed my heart. It was devastating. The reason it was devastating is because I had sat on trains for years, headphones in and looking out the window and drank from the well of this person's work. I had made decisions on the basis of this person. I'd uttered prayers using their words, and then they fell. When we hear of a fallen leader, the emotional blow, at least for me, hits me at two levels. First, I feel violated and ashamed that I bought in, and I probably even told other people to buy in. And when they fall, You feel like whatever they're affiliated with, whether it's a political movement or an institution or a church, becomes just as farce and suspect as that leader. Second, more powerful for me, everyone and more than anything, you yourself immediately become suspect. You look around at everybody else and, you know, you yourself and you think, are we all just eerily dangling on a precipice of moral failure? You know, if if he or she, then, then who else? What do you do with, with times like that? How, do you, how are you supposed to process it? What was I supposed to think in that situation? David and Bathsheba is one of the most famous moral failures of all time. David came from pastures, slingshots, and caves. This guy was a juggernaut Israelite who feared no one but God. This was the man after God's own heart who danced in front of the ark on its way into Jerusalem. And when he got there, he was ashamed that he dwelled in a palace and the ark dwelled in a tent. He was the shepherd boy who became the shepherd of Israel. And just like me and my Christian artists, people bought in. Folks saw David, ruddy, handsome, and overflowing the fear of the Lord, and said, we want to follow that guy. That's who we're looking for. There's a story of these three guys who were soldiers in David's army, and they were so devoted to him that when he was thirsty, they busted behind the enemy lines of the Philistines to get him a drink. Can you imagine that? That's like three soldiers in World War II invading Berlin because their sergeant was like, man, I sure could use a cup of coffee right now. It's like, you know, that's buy-in. But it's not just his soldiers. The entire Old Testament actually leads up to this point where David comes on the scene. And when you get there, you're like, oh my gosh, the stars are aligning. God's people are under a righteous king in the promised land. Yes! And then, in epic proportions, he falls. Some people think this is almost like a second fall 
in the new creation of Israel. Think about it. Just like in Genesis, it's God's appointed ruler, his image bearer, fallen. It's not just an interesting story about David. This is actually a really pivotal moment in all of the biblical story. It's the point point where if you'd been hoping in David as your leader or the program of Israel as, as God's vehicle for restoring the world, everything just comes off the hinges. You know, the sermon series is called Looking for a Leader. David, from this passage, is not the leader we're looking for. Verse 27 ends with, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord, and as such, this passage is the bearer of bad news. Heavy bad news. And it's actually bad news that we need to hear. But, in fascinating and beautiful ways, it also leads to the most high and exultant news we could have ever dreamed. So this morning, we're just going to do two things. We're going to lean into the bad news first, and then we're going to allow that to guide us to what Scripture has to say, what the Gospel has to say about when a leader falls. So, what happened? This story is much, much more complicated than just a guy falling prey to his own passion. This is like Shakespearean palace drama. There's tons going on in this thing. So the story begins in verse 1 with tragic irony that foreshadows things are not as they should be. In the spring, when kings go out to war, David sends his soldiers and commanders to fight, but he remains at home. Even more, he sent the Ark of the Covenant away. So like we learned in Margie's beautiful sermon, the Ark is one of the most important players in all of First and Second Samuel. This represents the power and presence of God. David once wouldn't even sleep away from it. Now he is using it as a tool while he relaxes. This is in stark contrast to the David we have previously known, who was once a fierce, you know, warrior, soldier, comrade, friend, spent his time on battlefields in his caves. Now he's getting out of bed late in the day, bumming around in his PJs after binge-watching Netflix. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. That is like this in a story. But David's not the only one at at fault here, and this is where the, the plot thickens a little. Bathsheba, you know, just so happens to be bathing within eyeshot of the king's window. The Bible doesn't present that as a normal thing for Israelite women to do. And notice that she also had just cleansed herself from her impurity, meaning she was ready to get pregnant. So Bathsheba knew what she was doing. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was one of David's 30 mighty men. He was a Gentile convert, a Hittite, who had come to call upon the name of the Lord. Don't think Uriah, you know, I always used to think of Uriah as this poor little guy in the army. He's one of David's chosen, distinguished, elite warriors. So when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, the kingdom is brought into this horrific web of sin. Um, This passage is full of people going here and there to fetch this person and tell this person that, which is another way of saying that this affair of David is a brazen, open secret. No one was fooled, and David was so arrogant it didn't even bother him. When Uriah will not play along, the lust of David that gave birth to sin finally concludes in death. David only meant to murder Uriah, but there's actually a portion of the text that's not in the bulletin. Joab actually has to sacrifice more people, kill more people, so that David's wish can be done. And when he hears about it, David says, "Eh, the sword devours one and now another. Like, that's just what happens in battle. Thanks a lot, Joab. While I was preparing this sermon, I was reading a Patrick O'Brien novel, which for those of you who don't geek out over 17th and 18th century nautical warfare, are books about the British Royal Navy, historical fiction books. 
And you have all these extremely brave, macho dudes who go out and risk their lives from storms and swords and scurvy and all kinds of craziness. And then they come back to the port and have dinner parties where there is extreme man competition. I can't think of a better word for that, man competition, but you guys know what I mean. These silverback admirals and captains end up having affairs with one another's wives. And the women actually promote it because they know they too are claiming their own prize. The horrifying part is that there's so much bravado in the room, it's shameless and flouted, and of course nobody of lower, of lower rank says a word. As I was reading it, I realized, oh my goodness, this is David and Bathsheba, just writ large in the British Royal Navy. Pick your context, and this is a reality when we get to the arenas of powerful and charismatic leaders, from FDR to JFK, even to MLK. It's sad, not because it's a story, but because it's a reality, even in Technicolor in 2015. But worse, David, as the shepherd of Israel, was the man on the throne of the people who were called and elected by God to bring blessing to the nations. Uriah was a convert who had flocked to David and to the God of Israel, and David committed adultery with his wife and murdered him. The fall of the leader is complete. That's the wheels coming off. So that's the plot. But what really happened? There's a reoccurring theme in the Bible that when you become successful, you tend to forget how you got there and what your former state was. So for example, Israel starts off in the desert, wandering Aramaeans. They were slaves in Egypt. And God reaches down and has mercy on their sad situation. He calls them and blesses them. And before they ever even cross the Jordan to enter Israel, he warns them time and time again, that when they're no longer in the wilderness, but in palaces and green pastures, they're going to be tempted to forget the Lord, become wicked and backward. We see Moses warning the people about this all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, and Jesus actually warns the churches about the exact same thing in the book of Revelation. And on the flip side, the wilderness, the cave, is this place of revelation. Throughout Scripture, people are led into the desert to meet with God in ragged clothes and dusty tents. And the palace is continually contrasted as a, as a place of spiritual numbness and forgetfulness. There's something about being threadbare and persecuted that makes your eyes and ears overwhelmingly open and sensitive to God. And there's something about comfort and the slow, steady tide of success that has this really deathly still, silent way of, of hardening your spiritual sensitivity. When we get to the life of David, that's what's going on here. This is in full swing, and it's no wonder why David's lying on his couch while the Ark of the Covenant is out at war. David in the palace is different than David in the cave. Let me explain where, let me give you an example of where this recently really hit home to me. So, my wife and I had the opportunity to attend probably the nicest wedding I'll ever get to go to. My folks were there, and when we were at the reception, my dad, who's a minister, was telling me this story about how he had just come back from Cuba helping a ministry get back on its feet after some recent corruption. In a nutshell, some Cuban ministers who were crushing it for the kingdom of God were given American money for their gospel work, and they ended up getting corrupted and moving to Florida. I don't know all the details, but in my imagination, I think, you know, maybe they got a nice house, maybe two cars, God forbid, maybe even an iPhone, okay? When I heard about it, this is a true story, my first instinct, as I literally had a golden knife and I was slicing into my filet mignon, soaking up a wine reduction sauce, was, gosh, that's sad. Like, you know, this is ridiculous. 
And then, like a punch to my gut, the irony struck me of the whole thing. Those ministers had basically become me. I don't know about them. They might have just been fine, but they just stopped being effective. And because they did, I looked down on them. But all they were doing was starting to live like me. I couldn't enjoy the wedding for the rest of the night. Let's just put it that way. How bizarre it is that we have to be careful to give a portion of what we have to other people around the world in fear that they might become corrupt. To speak a little more plainly, we as a nation, as Wheaton, the great enclave of Christian culture and resources, even as a church with all the beautiful things God has given us, live in a palace, do we not? Palaces aren't bad, comfort and success is not bad, but God is very clear about the dangers that come with the palace. The difference between being Joseph, think about the story in Joseph and Potiphar's wife, who fled from sexual immorality, and David, who kind of willingly in his PJs stumbles upon it, is not just as simple as being able to stand up against lust or not. The difference is sometimes the difference between the lifestyle of the palace and the lifestyle of the cave. Let me explain what I mean by that. Basically, it's the difference in your attitude between being on a mission trip and being at home during a really relaxing summer. When you're on a mission trip, every day, every minute, is go time. You get up in the morning and you know there are people out there who are in need, who are suffering. And I know a God who meets needs. And I know that my job every second of today is to pour myself out like a drink offering. You know, no electricity? Big deal. Jesus didn't have electricity. I skip a meal. Jesus fasted for 40 days. What the heck, you know? This is my privilege that I get to do this. When you're at home, a few weeks later, at least I know I stop thinking about that. I get up in the morning and worry about where to get coffee, which sometimes is a big issue for me. I stop thinking it's wartime. I completely miss that a coworker is in need because I just want to go home and relax and watch TV. I argue with my wife about the dishes. I get what the Bible calls entangled in civilian affairs. This does not matter how rich or poor you are because this is a position of your heart. It's a spiritual disposition. You can live in a way, in any context, in Wheaton, Illinois, or in Cuba, where every day is wartime, or you get comfortable. You might give money to allow others to fight the battle, but you no longer feel the urgency or the divine conviction to fight yourself. Now, in which of those scenarios, if a morally questionable opportunity presents itself, do you think you're more susceptible? When you start living the palace lifestyle, you better believe your conscience is sitting on a skillet being seared on high heat. When David was in a cave, he had the opportunity to kill Saul, who was repeatedly and wrongfully abusing him and trying to kill him. And he goes, I won't lift a finger against the Lord's anointed. When he's in the palace, he sleeps with a convert's wife and murders him. David couldn't handle the palace, and neither could anyone else in Scripture, and as such, that is bad news. In Wheaton, Illinois, we would be foolish to think we're not always in danger of the lifestyle, of that mentality of the palace. And the news gets worse still. See, deeper than the problem of the palace is the problem of the throne. For those of you who remember Father Stephen's kickoff sermon, which was on 1 Samuel 8, you remember when the people come to him and ask for a king. Samuel's heart breaks, and God acknowledges that they actually had rejected his kingship. And he says, okay, but here's what your king is going to be like that you're asking for. And I'm skipping over stuff, but this is uh, out of 1 Samuel 8. 
These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take the best of your fields, he will take the tenth of your grain, he will take, he'll take, he'll blah, 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 you get the point. Take, take, take. At the end of the day, no leader in the Bible ever was able to assume the throne, to feel the reins in his own hands and not grasp for himself to his own destruction and to the demise of the people. No one could ultimately cut it. And king after king, generation after generation has happened until the kingdom just dissipates. I always think like Lord of the Rings, for those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, when they go back to Gondor. It's a side note, we can talk about that later. And it is dead fair to say that no one in human history has ever been able to cut it either. Everyone at some point or another grasps for themselves, starts thinking of their own needs instead of the people's and takes could be a business, a nation, a religious institution, whatever. I'm not saying there aren't good leaders. David himself was a phenomenal leader. If you look at this sermon series, every single week up until this point is awesome. David is the man after God's own heart. But the Bible goes to great lengths in these chapters to make sure you don't get situated on David. That's really, really important. All of us, at some point or another, fall prey to this. So, let he who has never grasped or taken in a position of authority, be the first to cast the stone at David. You would only hit me in the face and everybody else. Now that is bad news, really bad news. But there is no good news without it. We must let the absolute tragedy of human failure sink into our hearts before we can hear like a megaphone what God has done about it. We need to witness the tragedy of the throne before we can witness what God does on the throne. So, after centuries of kings failing and grasping and oppressing, the people went into exile and God had enough. So with everything we've just heard, listen to this precious prophecy from Ezekiel 34. It's really long and it's so good. I highly recommend sitting with Ezekiel 34 at some time this week. But this is me kind of abridging it. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Ah! Shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. The weak you have not strengthened, and with force and harshness have you ruled them. So they were scattered with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, I am against the shepherds. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will feed them with good pasture. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. You see, God became fed up with it and said that he would come to do the job himself, the one that no man or no woman could ever do. Time went on, and Israel was kicked around, and in more way than one, lost their palace and went back to the wilderness, back to the cave. And all the while, they were hoping and looking for a leader. Jesus says this in John 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. David stole Bathsheba, 
killed Uriah and destroyed his kingdom in the service of himself. Jesus allowed himself to be stolen, killed, and destroyed for the sake of sheep, just like David, me, and you, so that he might bring us into good pasture and feed us from himself. The good news, brothers and sisters, and this is good news, is that Jesus Christ is the one, the only one, who could ever take the reins, feel them, and master them selflessly with every ounce of his being. And in God's creativity and abounding mercy, he came from the line of David and Bathsheba, in spite of their sinfulness, mine and yours. He is the king, and what's more, we actually believe he's alive, reigns today, and shall reign forevermore. That is good news. Amen? So the so what, the, the application, where do we take this of all this? Is I think to, re, to turn, to repent from that bad news and to turn towards the good news, to believe in the good news. We have the opportunity to repent of abusing our places of leadership and I think we have the opportunity to repent of idolizing people in leadership. We are called in the face of a text like this to turn from doing in our hearts what the people did in 1 Samuel 8. That is, reject the kingship the authority and eminence of Jesus in our heart for a human, any human. In this respect, we have the capacity to be just like Israel. So, it's not just the leaders who need to get their act together. We actually need to turn from grasping for a king from the palace. Our Christian culture gropes for any type of celebrity, anybody with social capital who has the slightest notion of faith, and when they're found, Facebook explodes. That's the same sin Israel committed in 1 Samuel 8, and it paves the way for David and Bathsheba. Jesus came from the cave. He came from the wilderness. He was a carpenter from nowhere. And many folks missed him for that reason. We are actually culpable for the kinds of leaders we look for. In my mind, I've always imagined myself leaning on people, you know, like putting my weight against them like a great oak tree or a fence post or something like that. We all put our weight on leaders and on each other, and for good reason. God has designed us to be in community, to lean on each other. But may this be a reminder that no one, no politician, no boss, even our leadership at Res, cannot handle the full weight of our trust and commitment. Everybody, at some point or another, because we're all human, will buckle or snap like a bad fence post. That shift of weight can be so subtle in our lives, and I pray that the Spirit would bring to mind anybody whom we are currently leaning on too heavily. And after that, your weight gets shifted back onto Christ who can handle every good pound the Lord gave you, right? So to, turn to, me, to return to me back in England, that was actually a really, really profound moment for me in my life. I knew God was letting me feel that fence post snap under me. But I also knew very clearly that he was using it as an opportunity to teach me to lean on him, regardless of what anyone thought or said. During that period of my life, there was this year, and I was, it was probably the, the darkest time in my faith, actually. And I really did, I felt like, as a visual, I was in this like treehouse of really old, shaky wood. And literally, one by one over this year, in the place I was living, there was like nobody went to church. I felt like I was all alone. And one by one, just snap, snap, snap. All these pieces of wood were just crumbling under me, and I'm just terrified. And I lived in fear. The few people that I grasped for, I'm like listening to their sermons or reading their books or calling them on the phone, I was just terrified that I was going to wake up the next day and the headline was going to be X, Y, or Z has done this, or they no longer believe this, or whatever. And I just thought, 
I'm about to snap. But God brought me to this point in that position in my life where I really, I remember being on a run and feeling like he was just saying, who are you listening to? Who are you, who are you leaning on? Are you leaning on that person or me? Do you trust me and me alone? Are you prepared to lean on me? And when I did, literally, by the end of that year, I felt like concrete was just being poured into the foundation I was standing on. It was a beautiful, hard, and necessary point in my life where that's when I kind of felt my shift of weight happening. If you've been hurt by a leader in the church, and that's almost universal, so I'm speaking to myself and everybody else here, I pray that these texts would fill you with hope, that this narrative in Scripture would speak healing into those wounds and give you a way to process the disappointment and pain you might be carrying, not only to be able to name the bad news and say, this is all of us, I've got to be able to forgive David because all of us are David, but also be able to name the good news and know that we are not meant to live on shaky wooden tree houses. The gospel, Jesus, is concrete. He's the stump that never goes away. We're meant to be able to lean on him. And the beautiful part is when he's on the throne and we are not, just like that passage in Philippians we read, we get the mind of Christ. So now we, because we are under him and following him as our leader, get turned into the type of people that don't grasp. We consider other people more significant than ourselves. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But it only happens if Jesus is on the throne and we are not. And he has the power to make everyday wartime regardless of where you're living. So you can live in Luxembourg or Cuba, wherever. It does not matter the kind of palace or wherever you're living. You don't actually have to (laughs) move to a cave to make this work. If you're new to Christianity or are visiting today, this is a fantastic opportunity to meet Jesus. The Bible is not Israelite nationalistic propaganda. It's actually very honest about the world that I think deeply resonates with reality. And it gives us a picture of what kind of a leader Jesus is. When Stuart's brother, were Christian, when Stuart's brother Christian was here for his consecration, I don't know if you remember, but he was about to preach from a passage, and he said, what do we love about Jesus in this passage? I felt like somebody like punched me in the face when I was sitting back there. I was like, that's such a good question. What do I love about Jesus in this passage? Do we not love that Jesus is the kind of leader who doesn't grasp or serve himself, but died for the sake of the poor and disobedient sheep like me, David, and all of us? Do our hearts not burn within us when we realize that he's actually king right now? Bowtie, stinking Sunday. Jesus is king. Do we not want to follow him? He is the leader we are looking for. There is no one else, and he is alive. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.